couple of promises real quick before we get started. First, I will try to turn off my mic if I have to cough, but if you're listening on the recording and one sneaks through, I apologize ahead of time. So I'm going to just talk until my voice stops. So I don't know how long we've got, so I'm just going to start and we'll see how long my voice lasts today. Uh, don't, don't, don't hug me afterwards. I have a cold. I promise it's not, it's not the thing. It's not the thing or I wouldn't be here. Okay, so uh, I need... One adult volunteer who is confident, you're not an adult, you, I need one adult volunteer who is confident that they know how to take care of another human. No hands. Okay, I need somebody who, who is willing to, to, for the sake of analogy, see how well they could take care of a tiny human. All right, let's go, Ben. Your hand was first. So, I asked permission. This is Bitty Baby. And this is one of Ellie's baby blankets. I need you to hold these two. And in the, the way, and, and you have about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. I need you to swaddle that baby. Okay. An effective swaddle. Show me an effective swaddle. On your mark, get set, and, and go. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's already over. We just lost her. Yeah. All right, now she can't see. Uh, right? So just keep going. Just go. You give us the best version of the swaddle that you can. There it is. And then and then hold Bitty Baby out just like this. Thank you, Ben. Okay. So so you're you're dismissed. Thank you, sir. I just wanted I wanted somebody to give me it. Because this is a thing like I I practiced the whole swaddling thing a whole lot when Ellie was very small because because it works so well if we can effectively get these, these things that are so flaily and fragile and, and cry and always hungry and always pooping all over the place, literally all over the place, right? If we can get these things wrapped up in some sort of way that for, you know, an hour or two, they can't really do anything. That's what, is that why we wrap them up so that they're contained, right? That's, that's the whole purpose behind swaddling, right? No, there's a whole lot more. Why do we swaddle babies? We swaddle them to make them feel safe because for nine months, I don't know if you know this, but for nine months, they were in a very tight, cramped space. They were, they were all warm and snuggly and, and tied up nice and tight and all of these things. And, and once they come out into this world, I don't know if you know this, but this world is way scarier. And so what they're used to, what they love is to be wrapped up as tight as they possibly can, feel warm and snug and safe. We wrap them up so that they feel this sense of security, this sense like they're still with mom so that maybe mom can lay them down for a second and get like 15 minutes of sleep, right? We wrap them up so that they feel like I am being cared for by my mom. She's still got me. I'm all warm and snuggly and safe as I'm wrapped up in here. But we also do that in the sense because, because when babies are small, you have to lay them in a certain way, and they have these like really sharp fingernails. Like, like you think paper cuts are bad. Baby fingernail cuts, like... They'll kill you, right? 
But so we do that also so that they'll they can protect themselves too, right? So their hands aren't flailing around, they're cutting up their faces and all. like like it's 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 security for them, but it's also safety for them. We don't want them to be able to flail their arms around or flip themselves over and put their face in a stuffed bunny or something like that. Like that's not good either. So it also kind of protects them from from the the dangers of the world of the crib that they are trying to sleep in, right? Because because we want them to be safe. We want them to feel safe and we want them to be safe. And so for the last three weeks, and this is our last week talking about this idea of wraparound care, that's kind of the idea behind what I'm talking about when I use the phrase wraparound care. This idea of wrapping somebody up to the point that they feel safe, they feel welcomed, they feel comforted, but at the same time, you're right there wrapping your arms around them to the point that they're not hurting themselves. They're not, they're not putting themselves in places where they shouldn't be. You're, you're, you're right there with them. And, and one of the things that I hope by the end of this time today that we see, and this is reflected in the way that Jesus ministered to people, and this is reflective in the way that the disciples ministered to people, is that, that to really wrap your arms around somebody means you have to be really close to somebody. You have to be in their life. You have to be in their space. You have to be in their bubble. And that sometimes leaves us feeling very uncomfortable at that idea. Especially right now when literally every newscast says, stay as far away from other humans as you possibly can. If you, if you see a person and you wave at them, make sure you don't wave like this so you don't push air toward them because that would be mean, right? Like, like make sure you sanitize the air between the two, like, we're all afraid of being close to people, and I'm not trying to say you should make sure to pass around whatever illnesses you have as quickly as you possibly can. I'm not trying to make a commentary on public health and all of this. What I am trying to say is, if we're going to really wrap ourselves around people, if we as the church have been called to be used by God, if we are God's designed tool that he is going to use to, to bring about healing in a world that is filled with brokenness and sin, and specifically, like, like I said, I started when I, we started going down this path, a world that is struggling with addictions and, and other, other problems, we have to be willing to get close. Because, just to kind of review, because like I said, God designed us for community. He designed us to be together with people. It was not good. Creation was not complete until we had somebody else to be with. We were never designed to live in isolation. And so God designed us for that, and he also designed that tool, that, that thing, community, that idea, to be the thing that he would use to bring about our healing. Community is the thing that brings us back. Community with God, right, right understanding, right living with God, but also right living with the people that he designed for us to be living with. So we talked about how the church was given the specific mandate. The church was the, 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 church was the vehicle that God designed to bring that healing to the world. Like we are the ones that he has called for this express purpose, to be the ones that he would use to bring about healing and to serve him all over the world, throughout the nations. And that's been his plan from the beginning. So how are we supposed to do that? This week is really intended to be 
a little bit more toward the practical side of how do we actually apply this? What does this look like in practice? What are we going to do about it? And I'm going to give you a couple of examples by the end of some things that some of us are working toward developing and maybe some things that we as CRC can get involved in as we go forward. Um, but first, uh, if you want to go ahead and start turning toward Hebrews chapter 10, I just want to, again, continue to reinforce some of these themes that we've been talking about. Because I want to give us some biblical context again. I want to continue to just kind of reinforce this idea of what it is that God is calling us to. How it is that God is calling us to go about living out this ministry that he has called us to. So go ahead and be turning to Hebrews chapter 10. And flip over to verse 23. If you've joined CRC, then you've heard one of us read you this verse. If you haven't yet, and you will soon join CRC, you're going to hear this verse at some point. Because this verse is in our membership covenant. It's part of it. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a couple of things that God calls us to in this passage. There's a couple of things that I think that the author is trying to communicate. The first thing is that he's calling us to unwavering faith in Jesus. Everything starts from our, our relationship, our community with Jesus. Everything flows out of that. If we don't start from a bedrock of having a, a right foundation and salvation and faith in Jesus and belief in what it is that he has done and, and being saved, if we aren't starting from that, then anything that I say, here's, here's some things that we can do as the church, none of that really matters because our heart's not in the right place with God. Our first concern and everything is that we be saved is that you be saved. That's the first thing that I want to make sure is that your faith is in Jesus, not wavering, like the confession of your hope. And I love that he's using the word hope there because hope is such the, is such the idea behind what's motivating this whole discussion for me is this, this hope that there is, there is a way out, that Jesus and community with him and community within the church can lead toward healing in a world that seems so hopeless where there is no hope, where there's nothing that's going to work out, where everything is falling apart, everything is getting worse, everybody dislikes each other, and they hashtag just how much they dislike each other as many times a day as they can, right? In that world, we have something that is so faithful, someone who is so faithful that our hope is unwavering in him. That's what he's calling us to first. We have confidence in the truth of the gospel, and right now, if you're one of those who um, maybe hasn't, hasn't really fully understood what the weight of the gospel means, right now, I just want to stop and say, this is for you. This is, this is a calling for you, that you would have your hope in Jesus. And I don't want to move on without making sure that everybody in here has heard me say, following Jesus is the only way. It is the only hope. He is the only one who is our hope for salvation. And if you don't have your hope and your trust in him and your faith in him, then none of the rest of what I'm going to say this morning is going to matter. It's just going to be, here's some, here's some nice things that you can do for people. But I want us all to have our hope resting in Jesus because everything flows from that. 
So first, the author in Hebrews calls us to faith in Jesus, confidence in the gospel. Next, he calls us to bring others toward Christ-likeness. Verse 24, he said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? He said, let us think about how we can bring, take people, and, and this, is so, this is so in line with the heart behind everything we've been talking about for the last month. Let us consider what are some ways that we can take people who are not like Jesus and help bring them along with us and push them and ourselves toward Christ-likeness. Right? That is next, that we have this bedrock of faith in Jesus, and then we're called to bring others toward being like Jesus. But how are we supposed to do that? And again, this just so reinforces what we've been talking about. Verse 25, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. How are we to encourage one another? How are we to bring one another toward Christ's likeness? How are we to, to make this thing happen? Through community, through being together. We cannot, I cannot encourage someone to be more like Jesus while, while I disassociate myself with them as much as I possibly can. The most effective way that I'm going to be able to encourage somebody, or you're going to be able to encourage somebody, all of these things, we talk about this idea of discipleship. If we are going to disciple people, discipleship doesn't happen at a distance. Discipleship happens together in close proximity. Maybe with fist bumps instead of handshakes, but, but, but we're still together. We're with each other. Because, because some people try to think, oh, I can take care of becoming more like Jesus on my own, right? That's what he said. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I'm sure you have heard people say this. You might have even said this yourself at some point in the past. Oh, I'm taking care of my spiritual growth on my own, or I'm going to watch this sermon online from my house and I'm good. I've got all the church that I need. I can find, I can find church, but what the author in Hebrews is trying to remind us is the best, the most effective, and the way that God has designed us to exist is that our spiritual growth happens in community with one another. And we cannot neglect the importance of being together. And this is why I keep going back to this idea that we should be in each other's lives all the time. And when I say all the time, I mean all the time. And that's hard. I know we have lots of things going on in our lives. We're busy. But sometimes the most effective thing that we may have to do is to let go of some things that are present in our lives for the sake of our call to follow Jesus and become more like him. I'm just going to pause for just a second and acknowledge that, yes, dad is having a conversation outside the door and everybody's looking. There he is. We can cut this part out of the sermon, maybe. Cool. Is everybody ready to focus again? I just, I just, it, was like, it was like dominoes one hit at a time. All right, here we go. But this is why I talk about us being in each other's lives all the time. Go ahead and start turning again. I've read it before. I've read it again. I'll read it again. Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and start turning toward Acts chapter 2. Uh, so foundational to everything that we've been talking about. Um, but this idea of us being together all the time is, is so important and so hard and so challenging, and we're not all good at it, but that's okay because Jesus is the one who, who changes us. Jesus is the one who makes us more like himself. By the power of the Holy Spirit and us being together, we can get better at this. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read 44 through 47. He says, And all who believed, the whole church, 
were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I know I have taught this so many times. You're probably tired of hearing me talk about this passage, but it is so core to what it is that we are called to be as the church. Every day they were together in church, at their house, eating somewhere. They were together And through that, God was adding people to their church day by day. This was how God was saving people. God was like, if you read the book of Acts, it starts with this many people got saved. Then this number got saved. Then by the time you get to chapter two at the end, it says day by day, people are coming. Later on, it says multitudes and multitudes were being added. But as they were together, as they were being the church, God was doing amazing things. And they were going through each other's lives and they were staying involved in the things that each other were facing. They were in each other's business. I mean, listen to this. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all as any had need. They knew what each other had. They knew what each other needed. And they were trying to do what they had to do to make sure they met those needs. They were in each other's lives. Not just near each other, but they were actively participating in each other's lives. We get another one of these kind of summaries of what the church was living like, just two chapters over. So if you want to, you probably have like one or two pages. Acts chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read verse 32, start in verse 32. And this just kind of reinforces that same idea. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed. So everybody at this point who was in the church, everybody, who believed, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Then there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This kind of togetherness, this kind of community that the church was practicing was sacrificial. They were willing to let go of whatever it was that they had for the sake of the body of Christ, and for the sake of the mission of the church, seeing more saved, seeing more cared for. I think it's been perfect. I think it's been divinely inspired that we've been reading through Radical on Wednesday nights because these themes that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights just continue to echo with what we've been talking about on Sunday morning. This last week, we were talking about about the idea of wealth and how wealth in the church has become a thing that we can we can justify why we have all the things that we have, but yet we're unwilling if God were to call us to let go, to sell everything and give to the church all that they had. Or give to the poor. We're like, oh, I don't know if that's specifically talking about me. It's talking about that guy, maybe. But it's not talking about me. But yet, but yet right here, we get this perfect picture of the whole church. I think, it, I think we should not overlook and excuse the difference in our church today and the church then. Because we could say, well, that makes sense that their whole church was. That's what their church was. For. No, that was the whole church. It says all the believers, right? 
They hadn't spread out around the world yet. The Great Commission hadn't really started taking off yet. They were still kind of in the early phases where God was kind of building this core. So we should really understand that this was true of everyone who was a part of the church. Everybody was willing to sell all that they had and give it to the church so that they could make sure that everybody was taken care of. They were giving time, money, whatever they could for the sake of others. It was sacrificial. It was costing them something to live in this community with one another. Think back to what we were reading in Hebrews um, about spurring one another on to love and good works. Proverbs 27, 17 says, says it this way. I'm sure you've heard this verse before. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So this idea of growing together, but, but now as we pair this with this idea of living sacrificially, think about what that verse means. When one thing sharpens another, what's happening? What's physically happening to the thing that's being sharpened? Or what's happening to the thing that's doing the sharpening? Parts of it are being kind of torn away. Parts of it are kind of being destroyed. Parts of it are being kind of chipped off, right? It can be sacrificial. We can lose parts of ourselves as this process is taking place. It can be painful for both those who are building someone up and those who are being built up. I'm not trying, again, I go back to what we talked about last week, that, that this call is hard, and sometimes this call may be painful and this call may be difficult, but this call is so necessary and is so worth it. So, I, I, again, I want us to realize just the sacrificial nature behind what God calls us to when he calls us to, as the church, build one another up, bring people back from despair, from the from the trappings of sin that they're caught in and, and spur them on toward Christ-likeness, toward flourishing. Thinking back to uh, parenting metaphors, um, I know that I've heard that I was like this when I was a toddler. I may or may not have experienced this as a parent myself. But there are some times when toddlers or even older kids have these things called temper tantrums. Perhaps you're familiar with the idea. And sometimes the kids just start flailing, the arms start going, the legs start going. And I know this was true for me when I was a kid, because I've been told, that sometimes the easiest way to get me to take a nap was to just wrap your arms around me as tight as you could, pin my legs down, and not let me move until I stopped squirming. And sometime after I'd stopped squirming, I would eventually fall asleep. We may or may not have done this as parents ourselves, as she won't make eye contact with me. Yeah, you've done this. Where, 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 where you your, your brain's just gone. Your mind's lost. It's just, it's all out, just scream and kick and cry as hard as you can. And we have to, and sometimes we just have to pin you down until you calm down. But what are we doing there? How are, how are we doing, what are we doing in that moment? What is, what is the action that is happening? We're restraining. It sounds so bad when you say it that way. We're wrapping ourselves around people. And it gets harder the bigger people get. So this, this metaphor only holds up through maybe 30 pounds. After that, it gets a little tougher. But, but this idea that, that sometimes you got to kind of hold your kid and just be there knowing that they're flailing. You're probably going to take an elbow to the nose at some point or another. At some point, you're going to end up with bruises, fingernails, whatever. These things happen. But, but 
for those who are so concerned for the well-being of the one who is tantruming. That is a hard call, but one that, that if our hearts are really for the person who is struggling in that moment, it is worth taking whatever, whatever, whatever you know, knee to the shin or whatever we're going to face because we so love them and want them to be able to get through this. And we're not leaving them. We're not running away from them. We're running toward them and wrapping ourselves around them and holding on tight to them until they're able to calm back down. That's hard. It can be scary. It can be painful. But like we've already been saying, this is the kind of thing that Jesus calls us to. This is the kind of... I mean, think about what Jesus did so that he could bring us back. He gave up everything, including his own life. These descriptions of things that we're talking about where, where people are serving each other and pushing each other toward growth are very personal. They're very close. It's a very intimate kind of thing where you're talking about wrapping yourself up around somebody and holding on to them until they calm down. Or this idea of, of, of going back to swallowing a baby, like just t- getting, them, getting them all wrapped up as tight as they can so that they feel safe and secure and loved. Because so many times we see somebody who's struggling or somebody who's, who's in a really bad place, and we say, I just need to get distance. i got to get a, as far away from that person as I can or that could be painful or difficult for me. But no, what God is saying is, we of the church are called to go toward that. At great risk to ourselves. Matthew 5, verse 40 through 42, just again speaking of sacrificial service. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So if we're to help bring about healing as the church, we have to realize it's going to be personal. It's going to be oftentimes one-on-one. It's going to be us building a relationship with someone else. It's going to be us getting close to others. And so... One of the things that, and I've talked about this a little bit, just, just over the course of our growth here at the church, several of us have really gotten passionate about finding ways that we, as the church, can get involved in helping bring healing amidst this addiction crisis that is so present, especially in our region especially right here where we are. And I, and, and I hear about it all the time because I, you know, I'm doing videos and stuff at ETSU. And ETSU is, has that same idea. We need to be doing something now because it's right here in our backyard and we need, to be, we need to be actively involved. And so we've been thinking about this and praying about how are we supposed to do this. And we've had planning meetings and we've learned things. We've learned about how addiction works and we've learned about, about how healing is often, how, how addiction is often treated and what are some different ways that the church can be involved in that. And there's, there was just this kind of, in the back of our mind, just this question, what is it that we can do? What is it that we have been called to do? And I guess it's been, I guess, a year-ish at this point. Uh, I was having lunch at ETSU, and we were just talking about some of the different things that are true about 
our region? What are some of the, the things that hinder people from really finding recovery or finding the ability to flourish or finding the ability to stay out of incarceration or whatever it is? And it, and it, and it comes back down to finding consistent housing and finding consistent transportation. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've tried to travel in Johnson City, especially maybe on a weekend or in the evenings uh, on public transportation. But in Johnson City, public transportation is not very good. Not very good. I'm not going to run for city commission and try to fix it. I'm not. I don't, I don't have time. But, but it is a huge issue. Like, the ability for people who don't have their own form of transportation to get from one place to another, especially if that is, especially if that is, say, the courthouse in Jonesboro, which Johnson City Public Transportation doesn't even go from Johnson City to Jonesboro. Oh, they just started it. Good. They've heard. Yay. Well, we want to keep this up. All that being said, the, the lack of transportation and is, is one of the biggest needs that, that our region has. And so as I was having lunch, I had this epiphany. I say epiphany because I think this was another one of those Holy Spirit-inspired moments where I realized that for the last seven years as a church, we have been giving rides to each other from the beginning. Like from the very first week, somebody has been giving someone else a ride to church every week. And that as I looked back across that, Everybody who gave rides to one person consistently really began to build strong relationships with that person that they were giving a ride to. This idea that community was being built through meeting this, this kind of physical need. Even though it cost the person who was giving the ride something because you had to go out of your way or you may have to leave your house earlier or you may have to get a little bit more gas or whatever it may be. It might be inconvenient for you on a particular day, but, but this idea that, that people in the church were, were kind of sacrificially going above just making it to church, but they were helping others to get there. And we were seeing relationships grow, and we were seeing actual you know, heart change, like that, that spurring one another on to love and good works. Iron sharpening iron was taking place as people were giving rides. And so we started to develop this idea, what if, what if the church became one of the solutions for this need that our society has, and that was the way that God could, through the church, begin to bring about healing to people who are struggling with addiction or struggling to get out of the legal system and continuing to be incarcerated, whatever it may be. And, and so over the last year, we've been working on kind of this side nonprofit thing that we've called Uplift that is a play on Lift which is a ride-sharing service. Dad came up with that. I still love it. That's still, I think that's one of his greatest contributions. One of. One of. It's great. You get, it's on the logo. It's everywhere. But So we came up with this idea, Uplift Appalachia, which we're going to do like Uplift Rides. We're going to, do, we're going to work toward figuring out how to do housing. And we want all of these things to be rooted in the idea of one believer building community with another believer. If it's housing, we don't want it to just be, here's a place where people that don't have a place to live can just go. No, it's here's a place where people who don't have a place to live and are struggling with addiction can go and be with somebody who is not struggling with addiction, who can be there to build a relationship with them and live life with them and help spur them on toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together has become the habit of some. 
Do you see kind of the idea behind this? Like, this is the way that we're thinking. Maybe we can take all of these things that we're seeing about how God made us and how we as the church have been called to do this, and we can apply it in some sort of really practical way. So we've started, we've kind of done all the groundwork of establishing all these couple of nonprofit things. It's it's all paperwork, and it's very annoying to have to deal with. Um, But but we're going to try to see if we can get something something going with this. And, and hopefully there will be more that we can call the church to moving forward. But just like, just like we said back in Hebrews 10, it all has to start with an unwavering confession of our hope in Jesus. It all has to start from this, from this foundation of our understanding who we are, what we have been called to. Because then, then when we have the right heart behind what it is, whatever it is that we get called to, right now we're looking into figuring out a way to do kind of a, a Christian Uber service, Christian ride share, church giving rides to other people. Pick somebody up, give them a ride to the thing they need to go to, be there to pick them up when it's over, and build a relationship with them as you're going. Or, or being willing to, to move away from the place that you are and maybe move in to some sort of house with somebody that's struggling with addiction and, and really try to help mentor them through their recovery. We don't know all the details of what that's going to look like. You may have a completely different calling for how to kind of impact the world in this way. You may not know exactly what that is. It may be something completely different. You may have a way better idea than what we've got right now. God may give you something else, but all of these still flow out of this idea of unwavering faith in Jesus, and it has to start with that bedrock. If our hearts aren't in it for the right reasons, we're not going to stick with it. We're not going to be willing to go the extra mile or give them your coat as well. We're not going to be ready to be sacrificial and give up even just a little bit more to do whatever it takes instead of figuring out how much can I afford. And that's why when we're talking about giving people rides, we're not talking about a taxi service. We're not talking about a van service. We're not talking about something where somebody comes in and gets in the back seat and I drive and I never, never acknowledge them. I just get them to the place and then they get out and that's as personal as it ever gets. There's a difference. Uh, how many people have like ridden in a taxi at any point in their life? Right? How, how impersonal is getting in a taxi most of the time? Where you go hop in the back seat, they say, where are you going? You say, I'm going here, and then they drop you off, right? There's a big difference when you get in a friend's car. Do you get in the back seat when you get in a friend's car? No, that would be weird. Don't do that. <laughs> Some friend comes to pick you up. You're going to dinner, and you hop in the back seat. That, don't do that. Unless they're the person that has all of their life in the front seat, you know that person, and they just can't help. Is that you? Okay. Clean out your front seat so that somebody can get in the front seat with you, because when you sit in the front seat with somebody, what do you do the whole way there? You talk. You get to know each other. You know what's going on. You have this interaction, this real human connection. It's personal, just like we were saying with the way the church was living. It's personal. We're not talking about just giving out things. We're not talking about giving service. Hey, here's, here's, a, here's a ride service thing for you, get you where you're going. That's impersonal. We're having somebody hop in our car like a friend and give them a ride somewhere. We're not talking about just saying, hey, here's... Here's a food voucher, go eat. We're saying, hey, come, come eat with me. It's, it's, not, it's not handouts, it's hugs, right? You see the difference? You see the difference in what it is that the church is called to? So, so our, our, our application of all of this, the idea of wraparound cares, the first thing is it's personal. 
It's real human connection with other people. Second, it's done without looking down on other people. It's filled with a sense of humility. Um, one of the buzzwords when you're talking about addiction, and if you've ever been to anything, it's one of the first things they say is, we have to reduce the stigma surround, like stigma is like such an impersonal word to me. But if you understand what the concept is, it's, it's this idea of not treating somebody as bad just because they're bad and they're bad because they're doing a bad thing. I mean, of, if anybody in the church, if anybody could have a right understanding of how to relate to other people, it ought to be the church because that's people who understand that we are all sinners and we have all equally offended God. And those of us who are saved have been given great grace by a God who we did not deserve to receive that grace from. And this, and this plays out in Scripture, this idea of, of, of treating people who are in sin with, with respect and as though they are human and, and, and image bearers of God and with value. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple of quick examples here. Genesis 9, uh, verse 20. This is, so everybody knows the story of Noah. Everybody knows Noah. Hey, built a ship. Here's the other part of his life. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two, other brother, two, two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And I've, I've talked about this verse before, and you're like, why are we talking about covering up a naked guy with a blanket? But think about the way they treated their father in this instance. Their father had sinned. He had gotten drunk, and he'd left himself in a really precarious situation. And it would be very easy to shame him for the sin that he had committed and to leave him feeling ashamed. But what did they do? They respectfully covered him up in a way that, that showed that they didn't, they didn't think too little of him. They continued to respect him, even amidst his sin. I'm not saying they said it was okay. I'm not saying that the sin was allowed. But, but they treated him as though he still had value in the eyes of God, which if we are all image bearers of God, we all have value that has been given to us by, the, by virtue of the way that God created us. Jesus did this too. There's, there's this, I'm not going to read the whole story, but the Pharisees basically brought up this woman who had, was a sinner. And they said, the law says she's a sinner, and so she should be stoned. And so we're going to punish her right now. Right, Jesus? Because they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to, they're going to, try to, get him to say something against the law because they don't like him. They want to get rid of him. <clears throat> and by the end, Jesus, is, and this is, such the, this is one of the most mysterious verses, as he got down and just started writing in the dirt. And he said, let, let whoever is without sin cast the first stone. Meaning, only Jesus in that instance, in that circle. And everybody just kind of slowly started walking away. And then we get to John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is personal. It's merciful and without looking down. 
Something really only Jesus could do in a perfect way. Only Jesus can really say, I'm not going con- to condemn you. Go, sin no more. Only Jesus can really demonstrate that level of grace. It's in a way, but I think it's an example for us in that she was absolutely deserving of what the law said. And I'm not trying to get into a how should the law be applied amidst, like, I'm not trying to get into any of that. But I'm just saying, let's look at the heart of Jesus in this. He looked at her and he loved her. And he showed her this grace. And we as the church, as believers, who have received that grace and understand the grace of God, should treat those who are in sin, who are, treating, who are struggling with whatever that sin may be. We've been talking about addiction. And, and it's so easy to say, again, and I hate this phrase, but, but it's so present and sometimes present in the church. Hopefully not here. But this idea of, oh, those people struggling with that thing in that way. They are different from me. They are, they are, they are separate from me and I continue to live separately. I will, I will give them something. I will help them in some way, but I won't connect myself with them. But we see Jesus very close to this woman, loving her and wanting good for her and serving her. And I think that that kind of heart should be present if we're going to, as the church, actually make a difference in a world that is struggling with sin. And I'm telling you, just this idea that that we all are starting from the same place. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All of you following the course of this world. All of you following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived. That's everybody. And when we have that idea, there is no separation, there is no difference between us and someone else other than Jesus has seen fit to glorify himself by saving us, by the power of his grace. So there's no reason that we cannot wrap our arms around others. We can't wrap our arms around one another. We can't serve each other by, by loving one another in a way that Jesus has first exa- given us as a perfect example. So I've given you a couple of ways that we're kind of working toward that. If that's something that you want to be a part of, let us know. We want to, we want to, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know where it's going next. We, we're kind of day by day on this thing. There's a whole lot of just kind of stepping out and saying, we're going to see what the next thing is. The next thing is. Is that for you? If it is, let's get it. Let's go. If it's not, if you've got something else, seek the will of God. Find out what that is. How is it that I'm supposed to do this? How am I supposed to live this out, God? How is it that we as the church can so love the world that God has has called us to serve and take the gospel to? How can we so love other people outside of ourselves in such a way that we can't help but to go wrap ourselves sacrificially, personally, humbly. How are we going to do this? By the power of the Holy Spirit, because we have that bedrock, that foundation of that faith that is unwavering in what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray.